very odd introducing myself and Nina, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know who I am, I'm sure, by now, because I've been bleating on all day. But please welcome to join me on stage the wonderful Truro's own Nina Stibby. Can I come through here? Sorry. Can I tread on this? You can, it's there just for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Nina and I are here not to interview each other, but just have a jolly good gossip and you can listen in. Um, because by one of these lovely coincidences, it turned out that we both wrote novels roughly at the same time. They were both set in the 1970s, both drawing on our mixed teenage memories. Yes. And both actually set in old people's homes. Yes. And you know, you and I are exactly the same age. I'm two weeks older than you. It's quite you. hot in here for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> But that's it, that's it. If I hadn't been two weeks early, we'd be twins. Wouldn't that be scary? Separ separately institutionalised yes. at birth. Yes. Tell me about your 1970s. Were they happy? Um, they were very mixed. I was at school at the beginning of the 1970s and I really hated it. And I, I was um, stopped, I was banned from uh, studying the O-level. I was moved into the CSE. Who remembers the CSEs? So the CSEs were a British-English thing for the less able pupil, but I wasn't less able. I just wasn't at school very often. It was bad. Yeah. Well, my mum had a baby, and so suddenly school didn't seem as important, so I'd stay at home and have a fag and change the baby's nappy. And then, and then I, got, uh, I was punished by being put into the CSE group, and I, just, I was offended, so I left, age 15. 15, 14, 15, I just didn't go anymore. So like Lizzie in Paradise Lodge... Very you, like Lizzie. <laughs> ..you made a kind of protest against I school. did. I didn't want to go. They treated me like an idiot, so I didn't go. And I got a job in a nursing home, and that's how I ended up in a nursing so home. So how old were you when they gave you a job? Um, was it legal? Coming up, no. Right. Coming up to my... I started at the weekends and I did a, a five till eight in the evenings, which right. was the sort of tea time, going to bed... Um, <laughs> slot what do you call it shift, shift. yeah the, shift. Dri the drive time shift yeah exactly so i did that and then then gradually they'd say oh can you come in tomorrow and i'd say yeah all right and did you like old people yeah they were fantastic did you prefer them to your mother's generation were they yes easier? they were nicer and they treated me in a way that i liked you know i was helping them they they'd say to me Find a man, find a man. You know, they, they, had, they, they, were, they weren't as old as old people in nursing homes today. They were quite often only in their, you know, they were only our age. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they didn't have any family to live with. Maybe they were an unmarried woman. Well, the 1970s was the last, I think, the last generation of, of people in old people's homes that included the, the disappointed from the Great War. Very, uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And All those women who had often been schoolmistresses. Yes, yes. Um, and they'd looked after their own parents, and they were Mrs Palfrey of the Claremont, yeah, you know. That, yeah. So they were those, you know, com most of them able-bodied, could come and help in the kitchen and make a batch of scones, and... They loved having me around. And and they, they, but they were also the generation that didn't expect to be addressed by their first names, by people oh who no. didn't know. Oh, no. They were, um, they were Miss, miss yeah, This and yeah. Miss That and so on. But it was, it was, a, it was a, an amazing time for me because I disliked school. My mum wasn't very parental. She wasn't very motherly, which is fine, but suddenly I'd got all these people well, it's not that parenting fine. It's me. It's not that fine when you're their daughter. Yeah, but I was 15. Okay, it was time I, that by yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So that was my um, my sort of teens. What about you? Where were you, Patrick? Oh God, I was institutionalised. I was I was going through choir school in Winchester and then on into the big school, uh, Winchester College. Um, and my first constant and really full-on experience of old people's homes at this period was because I didn't want to be in the army. And at Winchester on Wednesday afternoons, you either had to be in the toy army, yeah. which they didn't tell us. Actually, if you signed up for that, what, you cadets? were effectively a reserve. So if war had broken out, if Margaret Thatcher <laughs> had declared a big war, yeah. we, they, those yeah. boys would have had to go to fight. Was it the TA? Yes. yes. Yeah. So okay. they, we all had to do it for one year, and yeah. I did it long enough to discover that my, I was really dangerous with a gun. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really, really couldn't see yeah. the targets at all. Um, 
And the alternative was either to go and sit with one old lady and just chat and do her gardening, yeah. which didn't really appeal, or, because I was a very, very camp teenager, to join the entertainment corps. And the, enter <laughs> the entertainment corps, we, we basically went to old people's homes and sang Hello, Dolly! at them. Oh, they um, loved that! That was enormous. Well, yes. no, they did die quite often during, yeah, during on the three scene. occasions. Well, my, somebody died my while we were died. singing. But, yeah. but they, they liked us to sing this song, Daisy, Daisy. That was the favourite. But I quite often had to do the hoovering, and they had these huge stairs, and I had to hoover them, not with a thing that you do that, but actually lift the hoover on the, like that. And <laughs> hoovers then were made to last. Yeah, so, they really yeah, were. Yeah. And it had a torch on the front, do you remember? Yeah, my granny yeah. had one. Yeah. But I would sing while I was doing it, but I didn't realise that the, the acoustics of the whole thing meant that they couldn't hear the hoover, but they could hear me singing. <laughs> and I would sing the songs of the time, like, we're the bestest go in town, you know, all that yes. stuff. And they'd say, oh, nurse, that was wonderful. They just, they were delightful. They loved me. It was the, it was the time of my life I was most loved in that place. Oh. Yeah, really, my, I, they loved me. But the other thing that really struck me reading Paradise Lodge was that as a teenager, at that age, at 15, you really do want, you want to hear, you want to know stuff. Yes. And the 15 in the 70s was still actually quite innocent. Very. Um, yeah. And there is nothing more frank than an old people's home, really. Oh, no, absolutely. Because it, you know, it does get yeah. down to plumbing and basics Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, we... And they're bowel obsessed. Oh, they, they are completely... Like, you, you, there was a thing called the toilet round. And so, they, uh, so they'd have a lovely cup of milky coffee and a, and a Lincoln biscuit. And then you, then you had to take everyone to the toilet. And I quite, was quite quickly. Yeah, but you, could, but, you, but you couldn't say the word toilet. So you'd have to say, uh, I'll take you to the comfort station or the, what did, all, all those sort of euphemisms. That Little I'll girl's say. room. Yeah, um, the powder I, room. Are you get to read me a bit to remind I'll, me? I will. Shall I read you about the euphemisms? Yeah, I love Shall your euphemisms a bit. It's, I, d I promised someone earlier I wouldn't swear. It's and not I'm, swearing, I'm it's not biological. Swear, but it is, there are some... Yeah, there's biology. So um, this bit uh, that I'm going to read is where... Uh, this is all very autobiographical, and, and uh, a year or so into my working there, uh, we got this new sister, Sister Salim. And in the book, she's uh, vaguely from Uganda, but in real life, she was from Mauritius. But I wasn't sure at that time when I published it that she would want to be revealed as... as being, in, you know, as who she was. So anyway, she's called Sister Salim. She's arrived, and in real life, she, she was wonderful, and she liked the job being in charge of us, but what she couldn't come to terms with all the euphemisms, and it used to drive her crazy. So I helped her come to terms with them, so I wrote her a list, and this is vaguely what I wrote. Um, that evening, I made her a euphemism translation card to make up for the row, we'd had a row. Um, in nice writing with tasteful but honest illustrations. It wasn't as easy as it sounds because some things I thought were proper terms were euphemisms and sometimes it was hard to find the real term. So anyway, these are, these are the, this is the list I wrote. Comfort station, toilet. Powder room, toilets. Cloakroom, toilets. Lavvy, toilet. WC, toilet. Powder my nose, go to the toilet. Spend a penny, go to, yo, spend a penny, urinate. Tinkle, urinate. Wee wee, urinate. Number two, open bowel. Do business, open bowel. Pass away. Die. <laughs> Pass on. Die. Gone. Died. Fallen asleep. Died. Taken. Died. Hapenny. Vagina. <laughs> you could do it. You could do it. Tuppence. Vagina. Twinkle. Vagina. Downstairs. Vagina. Sweetie. Vagina. Place. Vagina. Soldier. Penis. So. But you have...
have euphemisms in your book? Oh, I, I big time. Because yeah. my, my book isn't set in a place I, I knew at all until I'd written it. The, my book only really happened because the unsuspecting librarians at Western Supermare invited me to come and give a, a reading. And I'd never been to Western before. And I got there a bit early because I'm a bit nervous of traveling. And I had to spend an hour or two walking around Western. And when I finally got to the library and was ready to start, I'm very indiscreet and I get very overexcited. And on my walk around, I, this idea for a book had started growing up. And so the first thing I said when I got on stage was, thank you so much for inviting me to Western Supermare. What an awful place. <laughs> um, I, I do apologize. Does anyone here come from Western? Did anyone here have childhood holidays in Western? Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. Western, on the face of it, you think, oh, seaside. No, it's not the seaside, it's the Bristol Channel. Oh, a beach. Oh, it's not really a beach. It's a, a, a thing of mud with a little bit of sand on the top and so on. It, it's, it's a town full of kind of disappointments, mm. really. And then where it gets really weird is when you start looking at the houses, because the houses are attractive to start with. You think, lovely, Regency Villas. Oh, it's not really a house. It's an old people's home. Oh, it's not a house, it's a halfway house for the people being released back into the community from long-term psychiatric care. Oh, it's not really a lovely house, it's a drug rehabilitation centre, and so on. And, in fact, I discovered Western is the southwest capital for drug rehabilitation, so it's full of people looking through litter bins and looking rather desperate. And so what it occurred to me was it was the perfect place to set a story about a rather unhappy teenager. Yes. Well, boy entering into puberty, mm. especially in the 1970s. Um, and yes, his life is full of euphemism because his mother feels she was born to better things, only her husband has turned their house into an old people's home, mm. kind of around her. Um, so she's permanently angry and she's permanently not calling a spade a spade. Yeah. And she often, she can't talk about common people, but she does talk about the rougher element. Um, <laughs> And Eustace, her poor little boy, is, is told you know, not to have anything to do with the rougher element, which yes. means he can't really go to the beach because it's nothing but the rougher element in Western Superman. But then he ends up at the rough school, doesn't he? Yes, yes. So the, the story is set now and then, and now he's in hospital having um, treatment for thyroid cancer, mm. which makes it sound like a very depressing book. It's not. It's actually quite a funny book, I hope. It's but, a very funny but book. while he's having this radioactive iodine treatment for his thyroid, he is listening to music from his childhood. It's taking him back. And we follow him as a child from 10 to 13. And when he hits 12 and a half, 13, he has a big disappointment because he doesn't go to the posh school he was meant to go to um, because his parents, it's the 1970s, they've run out of money. Um, so he has to go to the local rather terror, well, initially rather terrifying comprehensive. And this is pure uh, research and imagination on my part because I was spared the local comprehensive because... Um, my parents hadn't quite run out of money. They sold a coffee teapot. With, uh, they sold a silver teapot, which paid for my school fees. I mean, God knows, silver, <laughs> silver must have been worth a lot in 1975, <laughs> is all I can say. Um, but I based this on, on stories from friends of mine, and actually uh, a couple of friends turned out to have been to the really rough school in Western at this period. Um, so it was kind of an adventure for me as a writer, imagining what would happen. But also I decided it was rather a brilliant thing to happen because Eustace needs to get to know girls and mm -hmm. um, he needs to get to know the world. And this is sort of the making of him, really. I'll just read a little bit. Uh. Girls were unavoidable and insistent. The week spent with the nicely brought up if single-minded ones on his music course had been scant preparation for encountering most of the teenage girls of Western en masse, with their uniforms daringly modified, their hair as big as ingenuity and a brush could make it, <laughs> their breath alive with artificial fruit flavours and cigarettes, their tongues as sharp as their glances were withering. They were every bit as frightening to him as the boys. As new blood, 13 and possibly rich, the Bush Telegraph having swiftly informed everyone in days that he had been at St Chad's, Eustace found himself the object of curiosity rather than disdain. 
Girls in his own year group were entirely fixated on boys in the year or years above, or with a handful of particularly well-developed boys their own age who could pass for older. But both he and Vernon, that's his best friend, were soon being tailed around the place and even along the streets by school after school, by girls of 12 or 11, whose boldness was like nothing he had ever encountered. Who was he going out with, they demanded. Who did he like? Did he fancy this girl, or did he prefer that one? No one you know, he would tell them. Never you mind. And he would remember to smile, trying to convey worldly experience beyond their years, even as he broke out in a sweat at how unconvincing he must sound. Somehow, two of the most daunting girls in his year, a complimentary peroxide blonde and gothically back pair called Sasha Hedges and Suzanne Cassidy, quickly discovered that his mother was unconscious in hospital and quite possibly dying, and took it upon themselves to keep a protective eye on him. In his first week, when, despite Vernon's frantic warning signals, he couldn't resist putting up his hand to solve an algebra question that was baffling everyone, one of the bigger boys, a known rugby thug, started to mock his accent. But Suzanne Cassidy silenced him with a tongue lashing so impressive that even their maths teacher waited for her to say her piece before continuing without rebuke. If asked to predict their fates there, Eustace would have said that Vernon was the more likely to be picked on because he was more obviously <coughs> what Sasha called la-di-da. And where Eustace was merely what St. Chad's boys called wet, he was overtly eccentric. Having urged Eustace that they could best survive by speaking the simpler language of their neighbors, Vernon perversely <coughs> began to reveal his true nature in class by degrees. Speaking in long sentences, using his driest, most middle-class wit, even slightly emphasizing his trilopian cadences, rather than, like Eustace, making an effort to ape the long vowels and dropped consonances of Bourneville and Coronation. And though there was the odd attempt to imitate him, there was laughter on his side. You're funny, Suzanne Cassidy declared prominently when he had said something withering about Marie Osmond in the lunch queue. You I like. And so it was that Vernon unexpectedly went from being a class oddball to being almost popular, or as popular as a boy could be with no sporting ability and a taste for 19th century fiction. His eccentricities, his way of speaking, his habit of wearing his nasty nylon tie like a dandy's cravat were inimitable, which lent him a kind of rock star cool. And like a small fish, benefiting from swimming in the wake of one much larger and more noticeable, Eustace was granted a measure of protection by association. Thanks to some quick thinking from Vernon, it was soon established that his name was Stash, whatever it said on notices or forms. Even the friendlier teachers began to call him that. Eustace began to understand, oh sorry, I've gone too far. Even though the youngest children there were only 11, which Eustace remembered as feeling very young indeed, there was a strong sense that pupils at the comprehensive were largely independent of their parents. No parents were ever at the school gates at the end of the last period or at the start of the first. Pupils who lived out in the countryside made their journeys to and from the school on a fleet of battle-scarred buses. He and Vernon had long fallen into the practice of walking themselves to and from St. Chad's, but most of their contemporaries there had been scooped up at the longer school day's end by parents, as though preserving a myth that fee-paying children were somehow more delicate and in need of protection. I love Vernon. Vernon Vernon's a quiet, really, kind of, he's a quiet hero. Oh, he really is. He's lovely. And I love, is, is it Vernon for whom Eustace buys the porn mag? It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> Vernon and Eustace hit puberty together, although Vernon develops a little quicker. And yeah. um, as is the way, it gets very messy. I, I, most of my novels, I avoid doing naming apart sex. And 
I realised I couldn't avoid it with this because, you know, they are 12, 13-year-olds and they experiment the way I boys do. I read all your Amazon reviews just because I love bad reviews and you haven't really got any. <laughs> oh, I have so, if you scroll right down. Well, I, 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 my publicist is very well trained. She goes through it when it says, was this review helpful? If it's a bad one, she goes, no, no. and it just moves down. <laughs> I tell you, his publicist is amazing. I went to see him. He was at a very grand thing. Um, you were at that Savoy thing. Oh, Lord. Yeah, yes. I went to see him talking at the Savoy to Graham Norton and everybody, and it was all very, very grand. And his publicist shouted out, it was like it was a rock concert. She shouted, Patrick, I love you! <laughs> I know! <laughs> It was one of the. It made me really like her, actually. Yeah, she's, she's kind of terrifying, really... but she's nice if she's on your yeah, side. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. But, I'm just um... like a pilot fish. I go alongside her. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. I liked it a lot. I wish mine would do that. Um, I'm going to ask I'll her to do it. I'll put in a word. Yeah, will you? Yeah, she's yeah. Poppy North from yeah, Penguin. Okay. I'd quite like her to shout. <laughs> Um, so, no, well, I love the, my, one of my favourite bits it, concerning Vernon, as you've just read about him. So, Eustace buys him the Horn magazine. Yeah, we should explain. Eustace discovers <laughs> sex kind of in a very literary way. Yeah. Because um, at school, as they all tend to at boys' schools, they're, they're still at a little fee-paying school. Um, there is porn, but it's hidden in sort of corners of the loos, and the groundsman occasionally leaves an old copy of Health and Efficiency lying around <laughs> for them. Um, and he's looked at these magazines and felt absolutely nothing. So no, he, he, well, he, he until he looks to the, Well, <laughs> he, he, he's looking through them and he's feeling nothing apart from his eyes caught by a macrame plant holder. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he feels he feels nothing erotic. He just gets tips on interior decoration. Yeah. But then, then he looks at the back of a magazine where the fake letters are. Yeah. And he gets terribly excited by those yeah. because they're literary, but also because yeah. they they put it from a male and a female perspective. Yeah. yeah. And so he then rather slyly buy dares to buy a porn mag, a big glossy one for his best friend Vernon as, as a, a secret Christmas, a birthday present. Yeah. Yeah. But it's what the reason I bring up the Amazon reviews and the fact that you've hardly got any bad reviews. I mean, you've got no one-star reviews. George has probably written them yeah. threatening letters. Yeah, she probably has. <laughs> yeah, she probably has. She's taken but them out. Yeah. The only bad reviews you've got that aren't even bad but just aren't great. It's your, it's your beloved. Uh, I was going to say listeners, your beloved um, readers, who are a bit troubled by the messiness of this current novel. They yeah. say, well, you know, this time he gets very messy. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you can't, just as a warning. You can't write about this age group, will you? Not, not get messy. Well, Especially about boys. I managed it. Well, you do. Yeah, you did. You did. But then your book really is about education more than sex, I think. I mean, Lizzie, Lizzie is learning to... Be, she's becoming an adult. She is. She does talk about her friend having a dry ride. Yes, that's, that's true. That's about as far as it goes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, Lizzie's, but Lizzie's very chaste and she, she's, you know, quite prudish. But I, I'm, I'm just in March, the new book comes out, which is the third of the trilogy. I'm not even supposed to say that word, but it, but it is a trilogy. And I've had to. She's had to. She's finally got she's to do it. She's had to, yeah. yeah. And it's that's quite hard. Really, oh, God, it's No, awful. it's really hard. It's every, no, Nina, you're not alone. Every novel I write, if there's sooner or later there's a sex scene, and I yeah. hate writing them oh, so much. Oh, awful. And I usually try to avoid them and then come back later and the I thing hope is, the, the thing characters is I hate, don't need I actually, it anymore. But you obviously really love sex and you manage to... <laughs> whereas I'm like, oh, it's over for me. And I'm like, oh, God, can I... Do I remember liking it? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a bit like that and I just think... Oh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Tell me in March. Anyway, well, I've got, I, I there's always, lots of sex well, in my I, new I've book. Stopped, I've stopped teaching now, but when I used to teach Arvon Foundation right, you know, week-long residential writing courses, we always ended up doing a, a whole half day, well, half morning, on sex scenes, because all writers hate doing I should them. have come to that course. And, and, well, the, 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 in big letters, the main lesson they would take away was don't write a sex scene, write a seduction scene. Oh. And actually, one of the messiest scenes in this apart yeah. from the one in the woods I, with I have done it's that. really a seduction scene it's all about Eustace's careful preparation because he wants to do again in his bedroom with Vernon what they did very briefly in the woods yes and so he sets the whole thing up and he gets Vernon into his bedroom with cake 
because they they live in an old people's home and that's always cake in old people's homes. Yeah, there it's is. the one good there thing is. about them. And so he knows Werner will like the cake and the magazine is carefully gift wrapped and hidden and then he puts a chair very discreetly under the door in case one of the old ladies blunders in. Yeah. Um, but it's all about the, the builder. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, I have accidentally done that in the new book. I have, I've had Lizzie isn't sure whether this boy is, well, she says, gay or asexual, so she just leaps on him after a very erotic episode of Dallas. Oh, so I've done it. I've, I, that, that's it. You don't need to buy my book. That's the high, high point. Can we talk about, about mothers? Oh, yes. But mothers in the 70s in particular, because yeah. you and I are, as we've established, yeah. of an age, and I think mm. we had the angriest mothers of any it generation. England has well, ever they, known. They were, they were overeducated for the job they ended up doing. Yeah, and yeah basically they and should so have been withheld from all education, yeah, yeah, yeah. apart from basic childcare, yeah, yeah. because they were, they were so, I mean... So disappointed. Now, come on, be, be yeah, honest, did anyone else here have an angry mother who should have gone to university and didn't? Yeah, yeah, yeah there we go, yeah. It's such I, a shame. It's appalling, it was such a waste of brain power. Yeah, yeah. But it meant that as their children, we were constantly... Yes. Well, my mother did two things. She would constantly punish you with really bad cooking for the fact oh, that God. that was her main yeah. role. But also, in the holidays, you couldn't stay in bed. It was like, right, we're going to the V&A, then Carisbrook Castle. Because she, was, li she was educating was herself through us. What happened to us was my mum punished us by hating us for eating. So if we were hungry, she'd say, you can't be, you know, that kind well, of thing. Well, because we were rationed in the yeah, war. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And I mean, my mum was born in 1939, right. so she didn't sort of go through the war knowingly. I mean, she did, but she didn't sort of know. But she was very cross that if we ever wanted anything and, and, and that kind of thing. And if ever we were in the house, she'd, she'd sort of go, she'd go, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. and so oh, yes, we, we had to go out and play in traffic. You had to go out and play in traffic. Yeah. yeah, that was the 70s. <laughs> thing. The best thing that happened so my mum came from a very rich, very, very well-to-do family and married a very rich person. And she married a gay man right. whose family were trying to get rid of him and to, to marry him. So it was an arranged marriage, Yeah, it was really. very, very much. The, the families knew each other and she was a troublesome... She'd been... She'd been uh, um, what's that thing when you get kicked out of school? She'd expelled. Been, she'd been expelled from boarding school. For sex? For, for sex. She'd, she'd borrowed a bicycle and had sex with someone in town. Because she loved sex. I don't know why I don't, because she does. Uh, she still does. <laughs> and, um, she's not here. We're just, just checking. She wanted she to be here. She was going to she be here. She wanted to be here. Right. She's, she's, I'll, tell her, I'll tell her to listen to the podcast. Yeah, she'll listen. <laughs> she's heard all this before. <laughs> uh, but she, so she got, she got expelled for be, being a slag. And then... And then but the, so no-one would marry her because she was a bit of a slag. Not the okay. right kind of man. And then, but my dad couldn't get married because he was gay, but he was 15 years older than her. So then their two families went, look, we've got this rough one and you've got that dodgy one, let's marry them. So they married and then they very quickly had four children and then they divorced and my dad went off with a man, which was much better for him. And my mum was just stuck in this awful life of having four children all, all, all together, one after the other. And she was very attractive and clever. So this is kind of the plot of Man at the Helm. Yes, with two yes, fewer children. Okay, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and and so she was she was bored and she just hated having all these kids. And so she had a nanny that she tried to befriend and go out on the pool with. <laughs> but the nanny was like really well qualified, and she said, no, Norland, this is, Norland this is, nanny. Yes, and she said, this is against the rules. You know, we've got to. I've got. I'm meant to be the kids. We can't just go out and leave them. So that that was probably. And then, but then, then a good thing happened. My dad's business crashed. You know, really, but he he basically ran it into the ground yeah. by just being a gay man that wanted to go out on the pool. Well, it was so, in the seventies. Yeah. it was quite good going out. Yeah, the pool, oh, it was great yeah. for him because yeah. he'd been gay when it wasn't okay, and so he he just the business went just it was terrible, terrible because lots of people lost their jobs, and it's not funny. In Leicester, even now, people go, "Oh, right, Stibby, all right." All right. So, <laughs> and so, um, so they became very poor, mm. and particularly my mum, who did very badly out of it. She hadn't got she, her her divorce deal was shares in the company, so she she but so she. So you then, were living off Angel's delight. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, but yeah. but it was much nicer for it. Being posh had been awful for us. It hadn't worked. So being suddenly moving from this posh house where so much was expected of us, suddenly we were just scumbags, and that that suited us. But my mum got a job for initial towels. Where do you remember initial yeah, yeah, towels? Yeah. yeah. So she she got a job driving a van. 
and going into toilets, changing the towels. And actually, it was the making of her. She'd, she'd hated being posh. She couldn't stand it, and she never lived up to expectations. She didn't look right. And so suddenly, she was working with these ordinary people, and she loved it. And so it was sort there's of happy the, ever after, in There's a, a direct parallel. When in the 70s, the worst period of, kind of the fuel crisis and everything, yeah. my mother punished my father for not giving her enough pin money by behind his back taking a job as a cleaning lady yeah, was in it the so local YMCA. And she probably and she, loved it. She loved it and she yeah. came back with all this gossip. Yeah. And, yeah. Although still quite angry because yeah. she was meeting all these young people who were having sex. Yes, yes. And, you know, she wasn't well, having any sex. Well, my mum joined right in. Yeah, oh, right. She, okay. oh, she, <laughs> no, she did and she used to bring people back and, you know, there'd be all these people in the house and they'd all be shaking. We're not so, supposed to be, but this is, this is pre-watershed, so you should be careful about okay. this. But you and I have both done Sorry. something... But we've both done something very similar, which is shamelessly using our families in oh, our yeah. fiction. We've outed Have our dads. You, uh, we both outed our dads. Yeah. My dad we, was happy, though. My dad was thrilled Your mother with is it. still alive. You see, I have the advantage of you. My yeah. mother has finally been gathered. Yeah. Euphemism. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's been... But I've realised I've realized after writing her about her a bit in this book, it's going to take six books to work her out yeah. in my system. Because yeah. um, she's a complicated person. Oh, see, um, my mum doesn't mind at you, all. But my I was going to say, you've had no trouble. No. How about well, your siblings? To be, they, no, they're thrilled. Absolutely. Absolutely thrilled because they feel they well, feel two vindicated. Of them don't exist in your books, though, or do well, you? I had to put two brothers as one because it was just too many people. I mean, this is the thing: your book is absolutely full. This this current book is full of these amazing characters. I keep thinking, oh, there's her and him and him and Vernon and that guy and, and yeah, but Joan I made myself and Jean. An only child and, 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 and I've got rid of all yeah, my siblings. but you see, I can't handle you that many characters. Right. I'm not as good a writer as you. No, I'm definitely not. And so. I have, this is why your publicist has a shout out. I still I, love you. Yeah, Nina. you're rubbish. <laughs> um, so I had to just get rid of a few siblings, but that th there was a bit of angst about that because one of them is very macho and supports Manchester United, and the other is more sort of booky and gay. Right. And so I've kind of, I c it was difficult to blend those two characters. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I kind of went Georgie Best. Okay. So my brother Jez is a bit like, yeah, thanks, you know, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, what was I saying? My mum, so I, sh she had to read the first book first because obviously she's a complete menace and a drunk. But she was a menace and a drunk and she didn't really mind. Uh -huh. She didn't really mind all that stuff, sending us to London to buy her drugs and all that. She didn't <laughs> mind us doing that. What she minded was that in one book she had a baby and called it Danny. And she was like, I'd never call a child Daniel. <laughs> I don't like that name. Like, really? Okay. It's always the little things. It's yeah, the little, things. little funny little things. And but she, but with the book I'm just finishing now, I, I've, she started being quite well behaved around yeah. that time. So I've had to. I thought, what can I have her do? Because everyone's going to be disappointed if she's not arguing all the time and <laughs> stealing people's husbands and doing all that, and taking drugs. So I've made her a nudist. Oh, that's good. I know, I just thought, what could be the way? So I rang her and I went, Mum, would you mind being a nudist? And she said, I don't mind as long as I'm still good looking. And she was. Yes. She was. Pert, make so, her pert. Very pert. So she's a nudist and she does a few... Oh, she's a shoplifter, but she was a shoplifter, so okay. that's OK. She was a shoplifter. <laughs> she loved, but in it, in the book, she gets, she gets um, cured of it. Because in real life, she used to shoplift half right. our food at Cheese. It's very expensive in the 70s, cheese. And um, she, um, why am I telling you this? Oh, because she stops it. And I've said, look, I really want, because, you know, people are really on your side. And if you stop shoplifting, it'd be really great. And then you could not have as much cheese and be really poor. And she said, oh, yes, that's fine. That's fine, as long as I'm good looking. OK. No, it's very odd, because the only time I've had it in the neck from family has not been around what I've done to them in the books. It's when I do publicity and talk about the stories behind the books. Yeah, so, no, I, I do. Know, yeah, they I didn't got mind me out in no. our father on television. Yeah, that no. was fine. It was yeah. when I did an interview with the Guardian about yeah. it. That was yeah. just yeah. beyond the pale. Well, I heard you outing him on Radio Four, and I was like, "Hooray!" Someone else outed their father. <laughs> but my dad was always trying to out himself. Well, I, I started gently by doing it to my great grandfather, yeah. Yeah. which was kind of easier. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's easier the further away they are. But I, nobody in the family realised. I mean, we knew that our dad had left my mum for a man because my maternal granny constantly said, well, he was queer, you know. He was queer, he was queer. She kept saying that. And she's going, I think your brother's the same. And she was always, look at Jeremy playing with my bracelet. I think he's queer like Daddy. You know, it's all that. <laughs> so we go, I go, 
Okay, but um, but I what the only thing that I've got into trouble for, and it, and I I was really sad about this because I meant it kindly, was I wrote this little book about Christmas. Uh -huh. It's a marvelous little book. And in it, I'm, I talk about the round-robin letter because I come from a family that did round-robin letters. Right. And I read a few real ones. And apparently that was a really wrong thing to do. And I read one from, that was from my dad and his wife wrote them together. And they used to do them in fake dialogue. And it would be, darling, is it time for us to start writing our round-robin letter? And then the, Hazel, the wife, would say, oh, darling. What are we going to say? Shall we say about me being ordained into the church? And then he'd go, oh, but we, then we must say that I'm an atheist. And, they, and that's what God. their round robins were like that. And so I thought they were quite funny. Anyway, I had a couple of family members saying, we, we heard you were in Dulwich mocking Hazel's letter. And so I... But I hadn't meant it meanly, but so you do have to be a bit careful. Yes. No, no, you can no. out them, but you mustn't read their letters. No, and I, I have this awful thing where people stand up in the audience with photographs and say rather forbiddingly, I knew your father in 1938. Oh, okay. I had one the other day, this woman who um, produced this photograph. She was my mother's bridesmaid, and she, she'd followed me to People Ilkley. Never do this to yeah, it was... Everyone's <laughs> always heckling him. He's obviously so famous. Any bridesmaids in here? Reveal yourselves. No. I did once say a terrible thing about my sister, which was professionally bad. I said that my mum had become in, she, I'm going to use a euphemism. She was in an, inter an interesting condition right. as a result of having an incident with our nanny's boyfriend. <laughs> I'm being saying it deliberately. Cheese like was that. not involved. No. No, Sorry. no, no. But that had happened, and so she was expecting Rodney's. Oh, why am I telling you this? Oh, Vic, my sister said to me recently. She she rang me up and she went, Oh my fucking god. <laughs> I've just given Rodney a flu jab. <laughs> and he was the guy. Anyway, I said this in an event, and Vic came up to me afterwards. She went, you can't say that. That's, that's unethical. I shouldn't have told you about giving this guy a flu jab. <laughs> so you have to be very careful. Well, I think the parents had, if you're going to produce a writer, you've just got to be prepared. Yeah, you know? well, it's Stand like Colin Tobin said, you've just got to go. It. I think we should start. Colin to Bean say it was something really brilliant, but I can never remember what he said. But it was like, go for it, but in Irish. There was that, that American wit, Ring Lardner, in the 1950s oh, yes. or 40s, and he said, when a writer is born into the family, the family has had it. Yeah, um, yeah, well. I think it's just yeah, tough. Yeah, you know. no, it is tough. Mine, the worst, the, the, you know that thing when you write for um, revenge? Sometimes... I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never taking revenge. Well, <laughs> unless you count my mother, and that's going to take six books. Well, I, I've, I have done a bit of that, but only when it's really deserved. Mm -hmm. It's really deserved. <laughs> and always, always in um, defence of my mum, right. who I love, and I always want to, you know, look after her. And, but a relative of hers was a bit cross a couple of times, and I was thrilled. Oh. Well, but don't you think it's the rule that, that, that it's only nice people who look for themselves in books? Well, I it's only know. nice people who read novels. Nasty people know. are nasty precisely because they have no empathet empathetic powers. So they never recognise themselves. So you can actually put the awful people in your life into your books with impunity. Because really? they, won't, they won't see themselves. I I'm, don't know. I have done that a few times, actually. I remember it's not revenge, it's just realistic. I, I, but I went through the index of Alan Bennett's diaries. <laughs> well, looking for yourself. Well, yeah, when I'd only, <laughs> been a, I'd only been a nanny, I hadn't even had a, you know, a, a best-selling book then. Uh, but I, I, I looked for myself. I looked for myself thinking, because, you know, we got on really well. Mm. I wasn't in, and I, so I did look for myself, and I am nice. So is, is, does, that, is, does that prove what you've just said? Maybe. But, I mean, yeah. I didn't look for myself in the text. I didn't go read, read, read. I just went to the back and went... But, no, but the point is that you are, you, if you were a nasty person, you wouldn't have recognised yourself in there no. anyway. No, I don't think. I just think, have to make I think we should start talking to our audience. Yeah. Because um, there's so many of you, and I know you're going to want to ask Nina lots of questions, and I promise not to sulk when she gets all the questions. So. Oh, now they're going to ask you, and you're going to... No, yeah. no, no, no. We will nice we share. We'll share. Well done. We'll play together nicely. Now, no-one's going to put up their hand. Does anyone 
have a question. Otherwise, we'll just bang on. Right in the front row, there's lady and then you. Does your editor ever uh, hold you back? Who are you asking? Both of us. Does your editor ever hold you back? Yes. Yeah, she does. Um, what, my, does she all say it's too much, or...? She... She... My editor um, is... At the, uh, there's a thing she did to me recently where I realised that in the latest book I've written, I hadn't gone back in time much. I hadn't done that going back thing where you go, oh, well, I remember when, or the reason I hate restaurants is because my mother hates me when I eat. Or that kind of yeah. thing. So I had, so I put, I thought, I thought, well, I will go back, and I put in a, a, an incident that really happened in True Life, which is my dad used to pick us up, and he wouldn't didn't want to take us back to his house where his new wife and kids were because we were too rough, and so he'd take us for lunch in the posh, well, in Phoenix in Leicester, and we'd go and and, and one time we and they'd bring this awful food and it'd be meat and I hate meat and so one time I was chewing this meat and chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing. And the man on the table next door had been asked politely to put out his pipe. That's how long ago it was. He was puffing. And they said, during luncheon hours, you can't smoke a pipe. So he put it in his pocket. And I was chewing this meat. And I looked, and I saw his pocket was on fire. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, I, oh, my goodness, I better tell Daddy. And so I went, Duh. and I thought, I better chew, swallow this meat. And I went, <laughs> and only half of it went down. And I started really choking in a horrible, really kind of yeah, way. Yeah. And I thought, oh, God, it, oh, Dad! So that was all going on, and I've written about how that's made me quite phobic about restaurants, and it actually, in it, IRL, has. But when I put it in the... My, my editor wrote by the side of it, cried laughing. <laughs> cried laughing! So she's... I, I don't think she... She doesn't think I'm very funny. She's not very empathetic, maybe. No, that's <laughs> it. She's not... And she always puts... This is what she... You ask the question. She always says, not another dog. Oh, not another dog. Yes, actually, no, I've had that. I've, I've had a little note saying perhaps a cat next time. <laughs> um, but, you, but I'm interested but in But my your... next book is all going to be about cats. Well, my current editor is wonderful. She's yes. a really, really good technical editor, but she's, she's a bit of a good girl. Oh. She's oh. a bit of a goody-goody and, and loves her husband very much and never sort of goes on the lash oh, sort of thing. Um, so, no, she's a really useful... Um, template oh, you know, yeah. uh, testing ground, so I can see litmus Moral. paper. Yeah. yeah. Well, she, if she'll be, if she's shocked, yeah. maybe I've gone yeah. a bit too yeah, far. Yeah. And how um, did she cope with all the music? Because she's, she was, she made me take quite a lot out. Yeah. Music in this book is a bit like ploughing is in a place called Winter. <laughs> the, the first draft had so much you'd have got a distinction in grade one cello yeah. after reading it. You know, it was all there. Yeah. So I had to take yeah. out a lot of scales and yeah. lots of bowing yeah. instructions and stuff. I loved it. I'm, I'm not musical, but I did love all the music. And, and my mum is musical and she loved it. I think people do love um, I have, the music. I have done a Spotify playlist for I the know, book yes, now, I was going to mention because that. Because so many people who don't know music read the book and then say, yeah. I now really want yeah. to know what this sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So you can actually just type in, get a 12-year-old to show you what Spotify <laughs> is. <laughs> And they, they type in, you know, take nothing with you, and they'll get all the music. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But so our editors are, you know, they are, they're quite helpful, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. No, they are. I'm sort of in mourning. I've had really bad luck. I've had two amazing editors, each of whom has died. Um, oh, no. I know. It's like a curse, really. Oh, God. Um, but I, I had warning in both cases, because they were seriously, they got seriously ill. And while editing books, which is... Actually, no, three of my editors have died, but one of them was no good. Mm. But the two who died... Um, I, I really... I consciously have to channel them now. <laughs> when I'm writing, I have to keep thinking, what would Penny and Patricia say? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, you know, what would one they do? One problem I have with mine is, because I'm this awful... I'm, I'm, I'm not working class, but I'm not posh or middle class. I'm literally nothing. And so sometimes I'll put in a thing about my dad's chauffeur, and she'll go... Confusing, get rid, get rid, you know, like, you can't on the one hand have left school and be a complete scumbag and have a father with a chauffeur. So that's sometimes a little, uh, mm, with us, yeah. that she, I think she really wants me to be working class. And I'm not quite. No, I'm not. But I'm nothing. But she wants you to tick a box. Yeah, she does. Yeah, Just she pretend does. to be lesbian for a bit. That, that could work. You know. Oh, well. OK. <laughs> too late now. Yeah, yeah. It's too late to fall into Now I've admitted out. my... I think it's time I'm for another asexual. question before we yeah, go yeah, too far. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, come on. 
right at the back there, yes. Patrick, I'm curious about the name of the book. What made you call it that? Take Nothing With You. Um, it's simply explained that the book is, it swings between now and the 1970s. And in the now bit, which is the kind of thread that runs right the way through, the hero Eustace is going into hospital to be treated for thyroid cancer. And thyroid cancer treatment has two stages. The first one is usually a thyroidectomy. They take your thyroid out, which is a fairly simple surgery. But then to be sure they've removed all the thyroid, they, they kill off what's left using radioactive iodine. And this is delivered in a single dose, quite a big pill, but it's very, very radioactive. So you have to go into a lead-lined room. It's very Val McDermott. Um, and two of my friends had this treatment in the space of one year, actually including one of the editors who died. Um, and I had one of those awful novelists' conflicts where part of me was, you know, the friend in me was thinking, I'm so worried for her, I hope she pulls through. But the novelist in me was thinking, well, how long do I have to wait before I can use this? Because it's <laughs> such a fantastic <laughs> bit of, you know, metaphor. Because when you, you, you're due to go to the lead-lined room, they send you a little pamphlet on how the next 24 hours or 48 hours will be spent. And they say, take nothing with you that you do not mind leaving behind. Because you have to take clothes in, you can throw away. A book, you can throw away. Um, and it struck me, it's a really useful image for a character at a turning point in their life. And Eustace at this stage is just falling in love for the third time. And I, the writer, know, and you, the reader, gradually realize he only has a chance of real happiness if he can leave behind him not only the, the clothes and the disposable book and whatever, but also his childhood memories. Mm -hmm. So it's a very psychotherapeutic story. Long explanation for a simple question, sorry. Another question. You're warming up now. Lady right here. This question's for you. It won't be, it'll be for you. I read both these books over the summer and loved them both. See? And <laughs> Thank you. Um, they, it prompted me to reread some of your other works. I'm sorry this is a Patrick thing. Um, oh. I'd forgotten in A Perfectly Good Man how the, you give us little teasers about some of what the characters from Notes from an Exhibition are doing. So forgive me for asking a question about a completely different book, but what are the children from Notes from an Exhibition doing now? Well, what, right now? You just gave us a tiny little teaser. I well, no, I think Nina may have done this as well. Sometimes you, f you think you've finished the novel. Well, you have finished the novel. And then about six, eight months on, you realize you're worrying about one of the characters because you've left them in a bad place. And Morwenna, it was only Morwenna. I, all the other characters in Notes and Exhibition, I knew where they were. Their futures were more or less mapped out. And then I was happy about them. But I left Morwenna in a terrible place, having the most appalling nervous breakdown. She hasn't taken her medication for ages. She's going into a really deep depression. She's tried to commit suicide. Um, and I kind of leave her hanging there. So I brought her back and her father in the next book just to show, to reassure myself they'd be OK. Um, and funny enough, we're, we're, we're about to, next summer, touch wood, they're beginning to film Notes from an Exhibition as a feature film in, in Penzance. Wonderful director, amazing script by Helen Edmondson. And just as in the novel, Morwenna is left in a bad place. And um, I'm really hoping that means they then have to film A Perfectly Good Man as well, just to reassure people. Have you done this? You brought, well, you brought Lizzie back. You brought yourself back repeatedly. Yeah. Um, the thing I, what's interested me is that, I, that publishers don't like you to say sequel or trilogy. They, everything has to stand alone. And I found I, I Well, will, until there's a trilogy and then yeah, they remarket it. Yeah. yeah. But I, so in the book I'm just finishing now, um, I've had to get rid of this friend of mine, Melody, who's become a sexpert and is going to tell me how to, you know. And um, so. But my editor said, well, you know, you, you can't suddenly just introduce her as if everyone that reads this book has read your other books. But I do slightly write for those people, do you? I'm writing for... Sort of, but also I, I believe... I, I always think it's very stimulating for readers to have to do a bit of work. Um, yeah. Oh, yes, I don't I like do spelling too. everything yeah. out in advance. But don't, the, but, but I think the reader like should hit the ground running out. a bit. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And there's a, time, I, there's a thing where I say... 
um, oh, this person's family was so crazy, it made my family seem like, and I've put the Ledbetters, which is Margot and Jerry Ledbetter. Absolutely, I got that reference right. straight away, but now, then I am your age. My editor's 40, and so she doesn't really know the good oh, life. She's a child. But I think, look, it's obvious what I'm saying is her family, uh, their family was so crazy, it made my family look not crazy. It's always that that's what I'm saying, but I've now got to find another family. No, I think what you, you have know, to do is to say the Ledbetters in The Good Life, no, I'm not which is really boring, that's awful. I'm off the telly. No, I'm just going to no. say the Ledbetters. I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to rebel there. But I, but I also, I, um, I, I'm writing about the truth. I mean, mine is so autobiographical that I'm always writing about real yeah, yours things. Is, yours is far mine less... Is, Far, far less yeah. disguised than mine yeah, is. Yeah, oh, totally. And I meant to disguise the first one, and I did a, quite a good job. I mean, I got rid of a sibling, and I changed all our names, and I even changed the name of Lester. Lyndon Colonium or something. No, I didn't call it to that. To spare people's feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I more and more... And I thought I would never admit how autobiographical it is, and then I just did. And, and so now everything's just as it was. Well, the um, lawyers get funny when you have a book that's based on real people. Because I have a character in this, an amazing cello teacher, um, who is very closely based on a real-life cello teacher called Jane Cowan. And she taught, she taught my teacher and she taught me. And she also taught a lot of very famous cellists. And I disguised her very thinly. I turned Jane Cowan into Jean Kerwin. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had endless letters from the, my publisher's lawyers saying, well, is anyone going to sue? So I made sure that Jane Cowan's daughter and two of her pupils and her granddaughter all read the book and they were all fine. Mm. But even so, you know, they mm. were nervous. Mm. Um, but now it's really funny because on Facebook, all her ex-pupils are all talking about the book yeah. and they're all outing Jane, yeah. Jean as Jane. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. need to go to the trouble, really. I could well, have I've had Jane another thing, which is I had in, my, in this book... There's a, there's, a, there's, um, there's, a, there's a will, you know, a last will and testament. And so there's a lawyer, a solicitor. And I called him... Well, I, I called him Jeremy Hughes, right? And then, accidentally, in real life, it turned out that my real uncle, who is, who, who is called Jeremy, my uncle Jeremy, was actually the solicitor for the... For the, for the will and the... Story. Yeah, well, nearly, nearly. He was the solicitor for the, the owner of mm. the nursing home. And so I went to do an event one day. And I was doing this event and we were chatting away like this, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly this woman came up and she went, Hi, I'm from the Law Gazette. I noticed that you've written, you've, you've acknowledged your uncle Jeremy Barlow in, you know, what a lovely thing to do. Oh, and she went, Surprise, he's here. <laughs> my uncle Jeremy, and we had to, we had to find a photo like that. For the Law Gazette. For the Law, is it the Law Gazette? Whatever it is. But actually, I didn't particularly want to acknowledge it. No. Well, it... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, and I saw I was really pissed off. I'd accidentally just, but my brain had gone. What should I call a lawyer? Jeremy. Oh, because I'd forgotten. Good lawyer name, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but they, I, I love the way once a book is out and you no longer have any control, mm. all these things happen to it that... It, the, the readers bring to it. So oh, the other day I was doing a, uh, an event with lovely Tiffany at the back here in Bristol Cathedral of all places. Um, and I read a quite rude bit in, in the pulpit and so on. And it was fine, <laughs> I'm still here. And then when we were doing the signing sessions, this very respectable elderly man came up to, get, to buy a copy of the book and he picked it up and he, he hadn't seen it yet and he looked at the cover and he blushed to the roots of his hair. He blushed so hard I thought he was having problems. I said, well, do you need a chair? And he said, no, 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 I, sh I should just explain. I, I used to be the mayor of Western Supermare. <laughs> and none of my colleagues knew I was gay. And I have had sex, <laughs> times without number, in that very shelter. Oh. And <laughs> the, the guy who designed this book had no idea that this shelter had any significance at all. And That's so I've now wonderful. told him for the paperback, we must keep the image, but digitise a tiny little condom on the floor. <laughs> just for the ex-mayor of Superman. He always goes too far, yeah, doesn't he? I know. Always goes too far. I know, well, it's I nearly had a thing. Mine's very innocent, but rather amusing, I hope, was that, that Nick Hall 
Zombie wrote the script of my, of, uh, my third book. And um, he, he made up this character, that I, the, the, the me character just mentions. And uh, it's Auntie Joy. He, he, I, I, no, it's not in the book, okay, but yeah. he says he has me. Her. He has me saying because I, I was in that as a kind of very working class for some reason. They, they have me going, oh yes. Uh, they have Nina saying, oh yeah, you like my Auntie Joy or something like that. And um, and my cousin emailed me. Thank you so much for, for putting Auntie Joy. But wait, who is the mother of your Mark? Stibby. Oh, yes. I had a crush on her cousin at school. That's nothing to do with this discussion. Yeah. She's always reminding me. No, you're always reminding me. I can't forget <laughs> about it. But, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I, they thought I'd deliberately written Auntie Joy in and her yoghurt making. Well, the, the, but the, this is the, the really dangerous thing with writing fiction, if you have a colourful family, because often yeah. you think you've made something up. Oh, yeah. And actually, it's a long-buried memory yeah, coming out. Because then Terrible. Jane Cowan, the real-life Jane Cowan's grandchild reading this book, immediately emailed me and said, it was so clever of you to have remembered the caramel-coloured court shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'd made those up, yeah. but apparently the real-life yeah. Jane no. always wore yeah. caramel-coloured court yeah, shoes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you have to be wary. Yeah. And names are terrible. Yeah. I, I nearly called someone a name, and then when I Googled it, I put... I put Head teacher or headmaster, Market Harborough, and the name that I was going to call this person. I thought I'd be better just, just check. check. And oh my God, <laughs> it would have been terrible because he just he'd just gone on. He just passed. And I'd had this. Actually, I'd made it a woman, but she was a complete. Mm, yeah. I have to say, she was an <laughs> utter bitch from hell. So in case there are children here. What my granny would call us, see you next Tuesday. Yes, yeah. totally. <laughs> and, I, and, 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 and in real life, she, she, she slash he wasn't that bad. But, but it wasn't even that the teacher was him that in real life, but they might have made the connection and it oh, would have been so sad. I think we have time for one last question. Which means you need this back. If someone puts their hand up. Oh, there's a hand. Right, convenient in the front row. Where did you get Eustace from? Where I did I get Eustace from? Which his name. Um, the, the novel Take Nothing With You is... is as, Thank you. It's got two fairy godparent novels that hover over it. One of them is Noel Stratfield's Ballet Shoes, because um, it, it, it draws a lot on that plot. But the other plot it draws a lot on is The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley. And I wanted to signal gently to the reader that L.P. Hartley is in the background. And, of course, one of his heroes is called Eustace. And the 1970s was the last great flowering of popularity for L.P. Hartley's work, when he had two... There were two film adaptations and a great big TV adaptation of the Eustace and Hilda novels. So that's where Eustace comes are from. You, are you a Eustace? No. No, oh, okay. I've never... I've never... The only Eustace I ever knew was my, my aunt had a peacock called Eustace. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, she had a Eustace and a Hilda. Yeah. Oh. yeah. One more question for Nina. Just for Nina. Oh. Shout, shout. Shout it out. Shout to Nina. We'd like to hear more about the depiction yeah, of Alan, Alan Bennett. Bennett. Look, the thing about Alan Bennett is that when I was growing up, uh, my mum was a single mum, and we had in our lives a series of really horrible men that would come and sort of, you know, and stuff. And, they, and, you know, they were really exploitative and unpleasant and not very helpful and just a bit mean. And sometimes they would sort of turn up, even when we didn't really want them to come in, and they'd turn up after they'd been in the pub and all that. So I, I didn't think much to men, I have to say, back then. And then I went and moved into the house of Mary Kay Wilmers and... There was this guy just kept coming round, and he was so nice. And so I wasn't writing about him sort of deliberately for the world. I was writing to my sister, who she and I had literally woken up at nights with someone banging on the window, going, let us in, go on, your mum won't let us in, let us in. And we'd have to let these drunk guys in through the window. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't have. We should have said, no, we're not letting you in. But we did let them in, him, Jack. 
I was, yeah. Anyway, uh, he's passed. But anyway, we'd let him in, and then we'd go, Mum, Jack's here, and she'd go, oh, bollocks, and, you know. So, so, so to have this lovely mat, so I would write to Vic and saying, and this lovely Alan Bennett's mended our fridge, or he's made a rice pudding. So I didn't mean him to be grumpy. I was just, I think I was trying to tell Vic that he was maybe avuncular or, or, or just benign and never going to attack anyone or steal our money or, you know, borrow the car and not bring it back. So I was just sort of trying to say my life was good and safe. I, I think that's what it was. And, but I think, I think maybe I made him a bit too rice pudding-y for his liking. <laughs> I think I outed him as a handyman. But he, he wasn't grumpy. He was, he was wonderful. He was, I'm, I'm, very sure, funny. I'm sure he's secretly delighted with the portrait. He doesn't seem to be entirely delighted, does he? <laughs> but, I, you know, I've, I think I've put, put him on the map. I, I yeah. think I've done <laughs> On which, on which lovely note, we must let you all go because we need to go and have fun signing books and, oh, yeah. and having supper and then going across to the concert in the church tonight. But thank you so thank much you for, for listening in. Thank you for coming. And thank you, Nina. <laughs>